Physics World. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which looks at the challenges and opportunities facing quantum technology companies. This episode is part of Physics World's Quantum Week, and we've also produced a series of five webinar lectures on quantum science and technology, which have been running all this week, and there'll be more about those later in the podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston, and in today's podcast, I meet three physicists who work in the burgeoning quantum technology sector. Coming up, I chat with two CEOs who helped found UK Quantum, a new organization that has the aim of being the voice of the UK's quantum industry. But first, I speak with Raphael Yannick, who is Chief Operating Officer of Xanadu, a Canadian company that develops both hardware and software for quantum computing. Xanadu was founded in 2016, and you now have over 130 employees. Can you tell us a bit about the company? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're now at 145-ish. Um, We've been around for, for six years, celebrated our six-year anniversary um, actually just a few weeks ago uh, with a nice party uh, just down the street here. Um, but our core mission is to build quantum computers that are useful and available to people everywhere. Um, it seems like a pretty straightforward mission, but both the useful and available aspects are actually incredibly difficult. Uh, so about half our team is focused directly on building the hardware, um, and we're building our quantum computers on a photonic platform, uh, so using light to actually encode the quantum information. And I'd say uh, approximately the other half of the company is focused on uh, the making them, them useful, so finding out how to actually take real-world problems and encode them onto quantum computers, mainly because the approaches to programming and developing new algorithms for a quantum computer are completely different than what you would do for a classical one. Um, not only do we have the hardware side uh, with several photonic quantum computers available online today, uh, we also have one of the leading quantum software packages in Penny Lane, a great open source effort started here at Xanadu uh, with great folks like BMW and AWS now being involved in the development of. Um, so we're very proud of that. Um, there's been a bit of a change, probably the first uh, three or four years were really, I would say, uh, hardcore scientific research, building the basic building blocks of our uh, quantum technology. Over the last, I would say, two years, it's really switched more into a, a engineering and integration workflow. So now understanding how to build, take all those individual components uh, that built our first quantum computers and actually put them together into a fault-tolerant, large-scale quantum computer, they'll actually be... Uh, commercially useful. You'll actually be able to tackle real-world problems with uh, advantage over classical computers with. And you mentioned that you're taking a photonic approach when it comes to hardware. Um, can you describe uh, in simple terms how you're doing that, uh, if that's possible, if there yeah. are simple terms you can use? Yeah, that, that's always really difficult because um, it, it, we're in an interesting time right now for quantum computers. Um, all quantum computers are based on the fact that you're going to exploit uh, two really interesting physical properties of systems, either at really small energy scales or really small length scales or really fast time scales. Um, and 
these are the properties of quantum mechanics. Uh, you might have heard of the two superposition and entanglement. Superposition is this weird property of um, a particle or something being able to be in two states at once. Often we we talk about you know the electron that is not in one location but in two locations or multiple locations at the same time. And entanglement being the fact that we can have particles or quantum systems that are intrinsically connected together, but don't have to be located next to each other. And these are the things that in quantum computing we exploit to be able to get this great computational advantage. Um, the challenge today is building these quantum systems with enough control to be able to actually perform computations. Uh, and people have different ideas, IBM, Google, uh, are working on something called superconducting qubits. These are little loops of uh, superconducting wire where you encode the um, quantum information and the current within those wires. Um, you might have heard of a company, IonQ or Honeywell, now called Quantinuum, that are doing something called trapped ions. And these are literally atoms on uh, a chip uh, that they encode the quantum information on uh, and are able to manipulate it with light. But we do something quite different. What we encode our information in is not on the physical chip, but actually within pulses of light. And these pulses have uh, a few photons, so really kind of small amounts of light. Uh, but through the technology that we develop here, we're able to uh, generate that light with the su superposition required and then stitch it together to generate the entanglement um, that you require in order to do a quantum computation. Um, maybe a little unique thing about photonics is that uh, the beginning parts are hard. Making a few qubits, so qubits are the fundamental pieces of quantum information that we operate on, uh, is really, really hard in photonics. You know, this is uh, a really big challenge. But scaling up from a few qubits to millions of qubits that we need in order to um, actually make a useful quantum computer is a much more straightforward path than for some of the other approaches. I'm not going to say it's not hard. It's still a huge engineering challenge, uh, but definitely less scientific risk. No new materials need to be developed, no new methods, no new manufacturing processes to uh, actually being able to deliver on that. And is that a, the, a, the technique that um, some people refer to as linear optical quantum computing? Is that is that the path that you're pursuing, or are you doing something a bit different? So th there's a few different uh, approaches to um, working with um, light in order to generate uh, a universal fault-tolerant quantum computer. Um, so definitely a lot of what we do is definitely uh, the linear optical side. Um, you always have to generate something that is non-Gaussian or computationally complex. So for us, that is actually in the very beginning part of us generating our qubits, um, where uh, we use something called photon number resolution, so the ability to count the number of photons, uh, to generate very special states of light called GKP states. Um, and these are the states that actually allow for us to have a fault-tolerant universal quantum computer. Um, I'd say the... Uh, more common or kind of uh, original idea of how to use a quantum computer uh, on a photonic platform is often referred to as dual rail qubit encoding. And there are a few people that are exploring this as well. 
but that works on single photons, so just one uh, little particle of light, whereas we encode uh, our information in these GKP qubits, which are many photon states, and it has some really big advantages, the first one being that they're a little more robust to noise because our noise is the loss of photons, and if you have many encoding information, you potentially could lose a few and still recover the information. And then the other one that some of these uh, operations like entangling two states together become easier when you're dealing with many photons uh, versus one. Um, but definitely photonics has seen uh, a lot of interest as of late in the quantum computing space. It's always been a powerhouse of quantum communication, but more and more we're now uh, seeing it uh, as a place to invest for, for the potential of quantum computing. And, and Raphael, you've recently uh, partnered with the car maker Volkswagen to explore how uh, the properties of lithium-ion batteries can be simulated using fault-tolerant quantum computing methods. Can, can you talk a bit about that research? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's recent because the announcement came out this week. Uh, realistically, we've been working with Volkswagen uh, Auto Group for the better part of two years now. In one way or another, uh, a few months ago, we published a paper with them on the outcomes of this um, research. But all of this stems back to, to that core part of our mission of making quantum computers useful. So the truth is, and maybe this is like a bit of a dirty secret of quantum computing, that even if we had that truly powerful quantum computer today, most businesses wouldn't be able to adopt it for everyday purposes. And part of that is expertise is really limited. But the other part is very fundamentally, there aren't that many real world use cases that we understand how to encode on a quantum computer. And people have looked at the battery space um, in order to try to do some POCs around how to leverage a quantum computer, but nobody actually started looking at what can you really do to improve the current state of the art classical techniques with a quantum computer. And this was the first serious effort that uh, us and Volkswagen undertook to actually take a battery chemistry, um, look at all the steps that are required when you're thinking of manufacturing a battery uh, or developing a new chemistry in terms of the properties you want to simulate, whether it's cathode um, oxidation, electrolyte mobility, whether it's total cell voltage, and very clearly define, uh, one, is a quantum computer, given our current understanding, even amenable to these problems? Two, which algorithms are we going to use? And then finally, what scale of a quantum computer do you need to actually move the needle forward over existing techniques? Um, and this has been, uh, I would say, pretty eye-opening for, for us and for Volkswagen, both in terms of the difficulty of how large of a quantum computer you actually need, but also with how much uh, intellectual property there is to capture um, in this space. Um, we're from our uh, application side actually pretty singularly focused right now on this topic of simulating uh, batteries uh, and mainly for, for two reasons. Um, the first one being that uh, it's a very attractive space right now, both from a social good point of view, but also from a very selfish economic point of view that there's a lot of uh, funds that can be captured right now for developing these techniques. But two, 
uh, a lot of the computational problems that exist in simulating a battery uh, actually apply directly to other quantum chemistry domains. So if you're looking at, you know, uh, simulating a cathode, that's actually very similar to what you would do for transition metal um, catalysts, whether it be for carbon sequestration, for nitrogen fixation, both of which have very big impacts on kind of the climate problem. Uh, or if you're looking at electrolyte uh, development, those methods would be very applicable to small molecule pharmaceuticals as well. So we're able to have a very narrow vertical from a domain expertise point of view, which is great because we're a company of 145, um, but be able to apply that now to uh, problems that have very broad reach uh, far beyond just that vertical. Uh, so we're going to continue. Uh, that relationship with Volkswagen uh, uh, is, is only getting stronger, uh, but I'd say we've also done work with um, BMW in a very similar space. Uh, we have partners uh, more on the material side as well that we're now working with uh, on different parts of that stack, but still very much focused on, on that battery problem. And looking at that battery problem and the related problems that, that you spoke about, is it because the, the underlying processes that you're interested in are fundamentally driven by quantum mechanics? Is that what makes them a, a suitable targets for early quantum computing? Uh, absolutely. Um, what, I, what I often tell people is that if you're thinking of quantum computing problems, you often want small data, big problem type of problem. So, you know, simulating a uh, small molecule pharmaceutical, for example, you can write down the definition of that molecule on a sheet of paper. Uh, but to actually simulate it, we currently don't have the computational power classically to do it. And you're absolutely right that what we're wanting to do is quantum level simulations and quantum computers are very suited for that. But but that's not even the way that I normally think about it. Normally, I, I think about the work that our ALGO team is doing in terms of resource estimation. They know the algorithms that exist. And when we think about a, let's say, optimization problem, you realize that you require thousands of logical qubits. So these are qubits that are kind of perfect with no noise. And the way we built those is by using many physical qubits, which are the ones that we have in, in our quantum computer. Um, so that thousand logical qubit means we need that 10 million million qubit machine that can actually apply very large number of gates or operations to that algorithm. And is that, is that because you're doing error correction? Correct, right? So you, we, we believe fundamentally that without error correction, quantum computers won't be uh, economically useful, that that true transformative impact comes when we have that fault tolerant uh, quantum computer, meaning that we can do error correction well enough now that we can actually apply the thousands and millions of operations that we need without the signal degrading uh, and the information just turning to uh, noise. Um, but uh, kind of bring, bringing that back, the reason we're focused on these chemical applications is that when we've looked at the work we've done and other people in the industry have done, it becomes apparent that these are the use cases that have the smallest requirements for a quantum computer, um, even smaller than some of the optimization use cases you might hear of coming from the financial industry. But from a really 
fundamental point of view also have huge economic and societal impact. So they're great problems that we have to solve to advance humanity, but they're also ones that are going to be amenable for the first fault-tolerant error-corrected quantum computers that will be out there. So you said you have about 145 employees uh, at the company at the moment. Can you give us an idea about the career opportunities at Xanadu? What what skills are you looking for and what can employees expect to do at the company? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty varied. We're still very much a um, development-focused company. So I'm going to say we don't have, you know, huge sales teams or anything like that. We're very focused on building the core tech. But it's definitely not just quantum physicists and quantum scientists uh, anymore. Uh, We still have a very large core team of people that are fundamentally experts in quantum information theory and quantum algorithms. But more and more, we're now pulling in people uh, with domain expertise and the engineering pieces that are required. So I think I mentioned that probably about two years ago, there was this shift where, you know, the hires we really needed were no longer the best academics that knew quantum optics, but all of a sudden were the best engineers that know how to manufacture and integrate uh, these photonic devices into into a larger system. Um, but I'd say the, the career opportunities are definitely quite varied. Uh, at any given time, we probably have about 20 job postings up. Uh, if I can think of the ones we have right now, they range probably from accounting to uh, quantum information and error correction uh, theorists. Um, And always, uh, because of the software development effort, uh, we're hiring lots of classical and quantum software developers. Um, I'd say if you're kind of used to working with modern tech stacks on the software side, uh, it's definitely the skill sets that that we're looking for. Um, Moving forward, um, the definitely will be drawing more and more from the telecommunications, uh, data communications types of industries, just because of the problems we need to solve on the hardware side. And on the software side, the focus will be very much on uh, understanding what the tool stack looks like for interacting with quantum computers. So if you think of uh, on a classical system, uh, you have a whole compiler stack that brings you from, let's say, Python through C or C++ all the way down to some sort of machine code that could be portable and be executed. Um, This is actually a really big problem to solve for quantum computers and one that we're now focused on. So people with expertise in the classical side of that, uh, we're looking to bring on board uh, as well. And the company also has a residency program for graduate and undergraduate students. Can can you tell us a bit about that program? Yeah, so as you can imagine, much of, uh, especially on the quantum side, uh, the talent is pretty sparse. Um, you know, there's maybe a few thousand people in the world that know how to program a quantum computer and many of them in our graduate studies. So, um, we're often interested in engaging with them very early in their careers, uh, in order to make sure that we're kind of hiring the best talent. Um, as such, we've run the residency program now, I think for two years. Um, and, uh, we just opened up the applications for the third year and there's really no requirement of any specific education or um level of completion whether it be graduate school we've had anyone from postdocs to actually high school students come in and and work with us Um, usually what it does require is uh 
somebody kind of internally to to sponsor that person, identify them as like, yes, this is a person I want to work with on a specific project. And the projects realistically vary from, you know, I would say PhD level scientific research uh, focused on error correction um, that you could expect that you'd be doing at kind of the best academic institutions in the world, all the way down to maybe more community focused work of generating educational material around quantum uh, and our Penulane software package. So uh, always encourage kind of everyone uh, to apply. Uh, aside from that, we do have always a handful of co-op students and interns that throughout the year. So, so those would be university students? Those would be university students, usually from Canadian universities uh, that we work with. Um, um, so yeah, definitely uh, encourage people to apply to the residency program. Even if you're not going to end up working at Zen in the long term, it's always great to build those relationships with um, academic uh, folks. And, and how long do those terms last for? Is it six months or a year? So or? The, the residency usually runs the, the summer semester, so a four-month uh, residency. Uh, for the more traditional co-ops, uh, it depends on the university we partner with. Some are four months, some are 12-month programs. Uh, but usually we treat those people as uh, regular employees and a little bit outside of the, the residency program. The residency program is almost like a, uh, a quantum summer camp. Like we run special events in terms of onboarding, social events and everything, um, and kind of treat them as one, one cohort coming through. I think last year we had somewhere between 12 and 14 uh, people uh, go through that residency, which was a lot of fun. Do you find that there's a lot of interest amongst uh, students in, in, in all things quantum? Is it, uh, is it something that young people are aware of? Uh, absolutely. Um, it, it is tough because it is a very technical field that you need a, a good amount of background in order to be able to, to operate in. Um, we've been lucky that uh, we get a lot of interest with a lot of talented people. Um, but there's definitely you know, huge numbers of, of people that are interested in careers in, in quantum technology. Um, so definitely more and more people are becoming aware. Um, I would say, unfortunately for the majority of that awareness is pretty surface level. So I would consider people to kind of scratch deeper, make sure this is something they want to pursue. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, definitely a lot of engagement and a lot of opportunity. I mean, we're one of, uh, many quantum companies that are always looking for, for great people to work in. And there's definitely more opportunity than talent currently uh, in the space. Mm. Oh, it sounds great for, for young people then. Now, now you did a, an MSc in biophysics and you began your career in medical imaging. Well, why did you make the switch to, to the quantum technology sector? Yeah, so, so there's a little bit even in between that. Um, so, so it's interesting, I'm a physicist by, by training. Um, worked in medical imaging, actually started a PhD in medical biophysics um, before leaving to start my own company in the computer vision uh, space, mainly for industrial and self-driving applications. And actually we ended up working with many, um, both small high growth startups, but also large multinational entities in, in that space. Um, and I would say uh, maybe the best way to put it is became pretty burnt out, not by the uh, amount of work or, you know, the kind of daily grind, but just by the fact that it's actually really difficult to move technology forward, especially at large corporations. Um, I was looking for something different. Um, 
I knew a bit of the founding, not founding team, but early team here at Xanadu uh, and got connected with Christian Weedbrook, the, the CEO, um, and was really excited to join mostly due to the mission-driven work uh, that happens here. Um, you know, probably one thing that, that you would find is pretty consistent talking to anyone is uh, unlike academic institutions, unlike large corporations, even unlike many startups, everyone is focused on the same path and supporting each other in, in driving that mission forward. And, and having that has actually more than anything improved my mental well-being quite a bit. I can honestly say I work much harder at Xanadu than I've ever had to in my life, uh, but I enjoy it a lot more um, than, um, than anything I've done prior. Um, so it wasn't specifically I was seeking out uh, quantum uh, related. I do have a background that, again, allows me to, at a surface level, understand uh, different parts of the business. I'm definitely not going to be contributing to error correcting codes or, or hardware designs anytime soon. Um, but the focus was for me more on finding a mission-driven company uh, really looking to change the world more than, uh, you know, uh, somewhere where my past experiences would be hugely useful. And what sort of advice would you give to, um, you know, let's say an undergraduate student or a graduate student who's interested in a career in the, the quantum industry? What, uh, what tips would you have for them to, to get that career moving? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one thing is honestly start engaging directly with the companies right now. And like I've mentioned, we've had anything from high school students to postdocs come and uh, do residencies with us. Um, there is a huge amount of opportunity right now. Um, and even if it's maybe a different role than you would expect to have in the long run, uh, it's great to to get through, through the door. Um, again, this might be biased by my own experiences, uh, but unless you're hoping for a career in fundamental quantum hardware or information theory around the air correction side, um, graduate degrees are not necessary to operate in this space. There's so many problems that um, you need to solve with real technological engineering um, type of solutions um, that, that everybody can get involved um, right away. That being said, uh, linear algebra always helps. So just like in the machine learning world, uh, if you have a solid foundation in uh, the mathematics, uh, it becomes a lot easier to contribute technically. Um, but definitely, um, you can do that at kind of any level from undergraduate all the way through being that hugely deep world-leading expert in quantum information theory. Well, that's some great advice. Th thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great. Uh, it was great to meet you, Hamish. And uh, yeah, look forward to, to doing this again in the future sometime. That was Raphael Yannick, who I spoke to at Xanadu's Toronto headquarters. Like in Canada, the UK has a growing number of quantum technology companies. Given the highly specialized nature of the industry, it can be difficult for governments, investors, and potential customers to fully appreciate this rapidly expanding sector. That's where an industry association can play a vital role, as I find out in this next interview.
UK Quantum was founded in 2021 to be the voice of the United Kingdom's burgeoning quantum industry. The industry-led consortium is now open for membership, and I'm joined by two of its co-founders, Carmen Palacios Barraquero, who is CEO of Cambridge-based New Quantum, and Richard Murray, who is CEO of Orca Computing in London. Hi, Richard and Carmen. Welcome to the podcast. So, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about UK Quantum? Why was it formed and who are its members? Yeah, happy to. Um, so I think probably usefully for your audience, it's, it's good to rewind back to 2013 and remember that the UK was really sort of at the forefront of this movement into quantum technologies. So the UK, before any other country, um, started a significant program to industrialize and commercialize quantum technologies. And so if you look at where we are today, that really puts the UK in something of a leading position worldwide with, in my view, a bigger and better connected community of companies compared to almost anywhere else. Um, So that's a great head start for the country, but with global activities really picking up pace, um, we as a founding members of of UK Quantum thought that um, we really needed an initiative to concentrate the conversation, to look to to advise uh, government and companies to make sure that the UK is still a great place to start and grow quantum companies. Um, So it's really about uh, coordination within industry and to government. Um, And that's really something that we thought was um, needed in the UK ecosystem to better coordinate the multiple sort of industry players that that are already present. Um, So it was a founding organization. So we got, we were in conversations with UK government, but really it was, it was several uh, industry partners who came together under their own steam. Um, and those partners in, include Orca Computing and, and New Quantum, so um, uh, Carmen and myself, but also a combination of small and large companies, so uh, BT, uh, the cu- communications company Arkit, uh, Ketz Quantum Security, Riverlane, Oxford Instruments, BAE Systems, and then more recently with support from the Quantum Insider, the media outlet Quantum Insider, and the Compound Semiconductor Catapult. And together we hope to represent uh, the UK community and put forward the views from a sort of single source of what the UK is doing and what we need to do to, to, to succeed in, in commercialising quantum technologies. And, and what about um, universities and um, national labs? Are, they, are, are you hoping to have them as members or maybe you do already? Um, so we decided at a very early stage that we, we, we thought there was a gap for an industry voice um, relating to quantum technologies. So uh, we have a structure that um, uh, pr- uh, has certain uh, advantages for companies joining. Um, we are also open to non-company uh, members, um, although you know, we have a sort of principle that as long as those members represent the views or have, have, have thoughts on the industrial side of quantum, um, that's the sort of focus that we're, we're, we see uh, missing in the current landscape, that industrial focus and that industrial voice. So that was a long answer. Yes, we're open to university members, but uh, the focus is really on an industrial voice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and the founding committee of UK Quantum, uh, Richard, has already worked with the UK government to shape uh, the country's quantum strategy. 
Uh, what, what sort of issues um, were you discussing with the government? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the first things that government wanted us to do, and we were asked to articulate as clearly as possible, was really the reason why we're all excited about quantum technologies. So to advocate quantum within government and to really understand the business case from the government perspective to continue to uplift the support uh, that the UK has provided so far. So the first thing was just as an industry community explaining, again, from the industrial perspective, why quantum is exciting and, and why now. Um, so that was a good starting point. That's an incredibly important job within government, just firstly to explain why it's, why it's important. And obviously, we all know why it is, but conveying that to, to people within government. And then the, I think the second part of the conversation was in more detail to try and articulate, again, from the industrial perspective, what the challenges are, um, what's holding back uh, UK companies, large, small, in all of the different areas that quantum technologies cover. Um, so we, we had um, several detailed um, uh, recommendations that government should work on. In areas like skills, uh, we also sort of put forward the view that uh, providing a skilled workforce is an incredibly important thing for the country to, 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 to provide to industry. And also a view on international strategy, how the UK works internationally, and then in things like uh, supply chain, so to coordinate the supply chain activities. So really as much as possible, we're trying to provide a common view, but one which represents the whole of UK industry on several important matters that help quantum to move forward. And Richard, you, you mentioned that um, that the UK is a pioneer um, in developing uh, quantum technologies. Um, I'm guessing that that means that the, the country already provides a, a healthy environment for for industry. Um, what are the country's strengths and um, and what can be improved on? It's a great question. You are right. And we, we're all lucky, I suppose, to, and we should often mention the tremendous support that companies have had so far through the UK National Quantum Technology Programme. So since 2013 that I mentioned, I think the UK has, uh, the total sort of support given is, is approaching a billion pounds uh, into the industry across the supply chain in all of the different areas. And so that's been good to help companies uh, to, to start or to um, grow their quantum activities. Um, I think what's often uh, sort of missed or, or difficult to see at a glance is the the effect that's had on building a community and a supply chain. So quantum is a completely new industry, and often it needs several uh, companies to come together across the supply chain, component manufacturers, quantum uh, uh, system providers, and also users. And I think in the UK, it's been very successful in growing that community of companies across the supply chain who are used to each other, who work with each other, and who are uh, building products together. So that's been, in fact, tr tremendously successful, something that I think the UK is better at than many other countries that I see. I think the challenges are, um, are frankly, that the, the, the interest in quantum has, heat, has hotted up. So the UK is not alone anymore in having recognised that quantum is an exciting new industry. There are Every other month, there is some new initiative launched from a new country. Um, and so I think the UK can't sort of rest up um, it has to continue to support this technology so that it becomes uh, the products and services that we all we all know it will. 
Um, so, but I, I suppose in, in amongst that landscape, I should say, I'm very keen on saying that I don't think it's about the UK winning the race. Um, I am a believer that the market for quantum is global. Um, and I think some of our advice to government has been around how the UK can help find its place and grow its place uh, in this international, in this global market. And that's really important. I think that's a sort of subtlety that's often missed. It's often about how we can win the race. I don't believe that it's about winning. I think it's about being a part of this really incredibly exciting new industry. And, and Carmen, a lot of, uh, of of quantum technology companies are are small companies. Perhaps they've they've spun out of a university um, based on a great idea or a great technology developed by researchers. What advice would you give to um, researchers and entrepreneurs who would like to launch a company into the quantum sector? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I would say is do it. Um, the, the quantum industry is not going anywhere. It's here to stay and it's here to grow. And we need more companies and, and, and more technologies solving problems that, uh, that the industry cares about. So before you do that, I would say really talk to the industry, talk, talk to other founders in, in quantum, uh, really understand uh, how the current landscape looks like and how it's likely to change. Talk to investors and mentors outside the, the industry as well. Um, a lot of the, the, the advice is not kind of quantum specific. It's you know, any entrepreneur creating a deep tech business, make sure that you're entering a, a good market. Uh, you're solving a, a pervasive problem that many people want to pay, you know, ideally a lot of money for, um, and, and that you're entering into a, market that has reasonable competition so that um, you, know, you, you, you can you can play um, choose the right moment um, you know some would say you know, when we're talking about what the current macroeconomic climate is and um, th that plays a role in how how investors are looking at investing in deep tech where we are on the hype cycle plays a role in how investors looking look at investing in, in the sector. Um, I would say what is a little bit more quantum specific is um, make sure that you mature the tech inside, you know, if, if you're in an academic lab, make sure that you mature it as much as possible because we're really used to these state-of-the-art, um, for example, in our case, quantum optics labs inside Cambridge um, that we've done our research and our PhDs in, those labs are very expensive and it takes a long <laughs> time to get to that level of uh, kind of uh, kit. So, um, you know, make sure you, you make the most of it whilst you're there. Uh, make sure the IP is watertight and also try for universities to not get a big stake in your company in exchange for that equity. Really, really I would say less than 5%, um, but ideally less than that. And then I think lastly, um, getting the right investors is really important, especially, and this is maybe a bit quantum specific. So investors that have done the work of understanding the industry, of understanding quantum, and that are committed to it. And Carmen, Richard um, touched on the issue of, of skilled employees. Um, what, what sort of skills are you looking for uh, when, when you're hiring? 
And are those skills readily available in the UK? Mm -hmm. So as as Richard said, um, we're creating a completely new industry, right? Um, So we need everything. Uh, I call out to all kinds of people to join the the quantum industry. Uh, We're creating new hardware and new software. Um, So in terms of hard technical skills, let's say, quantum is super interdisciplinary. So of course we need quantum physics PhDs, both experimentalists and theoreticians, but importantly, we need everything else. So engineers, we need electronics engineers, software engineers, nanofabrication engineers, systems integrators. This is really important. Um, and then business development, you know, people, sales and business development, uh, people that are, are happy to go into the sector, um, IP specialists, and um, well, in general, good good technical leaders uh, and and man- managers at, at all levels, really. Um, I think for me, the soft soft skills that uh, I look for is alignment with our company culture. So that depends a little bit on which company or startup you're joining. Um, are these skills readily available in the UK? Yes, they are, and to a very high quality, I would say. Potentially, however, not enough because we are we are growing a lot as an industry. We're all doubling and tripling in size in the next year and beyond. Um, and there's a general general talent shortage in tech. I think that's felt across other industries as well, and that we can see that that's the case because there's that's put a lot of pressure in salaries recently. Um, so we the UK needs to hire internationally. Um, we need to be able to do that. And that is something that the UK has always been good at doing at attracting talent from, from across, the, across the globe. So that needs to keep happening, even if there is the good, good high quality skills in the UK. And so what, what does the future look like um, for UK Quantum, Carmen? What, what are the key issues that, you're, you're, that the organization is going to be dealing with? Yeah, so the future looks really very exciting. We're, we're, this is just the beginning. Um, for me, the key issues that we're, we're going to be working on as UK Quantum are three. So the first one is, is in, internal, let's say. So unifying the quantum industry, getting organized internally around big topics and big, big issues uh, and doing working groups. And, and kind of unifying the industry in that way. The second one um, is around liaising with government. So as Richard um, explained, the UK government has been one of the pioneers in supporting quantum. We want to make sure that that continues to be the case in a strong way so that it doesn't, doesn't you know, uh, decrease, but it increases in terms of uh, all kinds of support and to make sure that that support from the government has the right shape and the right strategy. Um, and the third the third aspect, which um, I think for both Richard and I is, is one of the most exciting, is, is putting the UK in a, in, a, in a really good position vis-a-vis our international um, colleagues. So showcasing companies uh, in the UK, 
uh, overseas and in general just raising our profile um, uh, with, with our international counterparts. So there are similar industry groups like UK Quantum in, in, in the US, in Japan, in Europe, and liaising with them um, and being kind of an, you know, their counterpart in the UK is, is the third kind of pillar uh, of, of the UK quantum activities. Well, that's great. Th thanks, Carmen and, and Richard, for, for telling us about um, UK Quantum. Um, we're really looking forward to, to hearing more from the organization in the future and also from your companies, New Quantum and Orca Computing. Um, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, join us at ukquantum.org if anyone is interested in becoming a member. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Raphael Yannick, Carmen Palacios Barraquero, and Richard Murray for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. This podcast is part of Quantum Week at Physics World. And this event includes five webinar lectures given by leading figures in the world of quantum science and technology. Details about all the lectures can be found on the Physics World website. Just click on the Audio and Video tab, followed by the Webinars tab. And don't worry if you've missed a lecture. All of them are available to watch again, free of charge. Physics World